welcome to the seventh episode of Let's Schmooze. I'm Doug Ebuck, the original screenwriter for the movie Sweet Home Alabama. Each month, I bring on guests to discuss topics related to writing for various entertainment media. Today, we're discussing Christmas movies. Uh, my guests are Valerie Alexander, co-writer of Memories of Christmas on Hallmark Channel, which has made the top 25 list for best Hallmark Christmas movies from such places as Good Housekeeping and Glamour. And it was the first Hallmark Christmas movie with black leads. Valerie is also a re renowned expert on workplace happiness and a leading voice on equity and inclusion. Uh, my other guest is Amanda Raymond, co-writer and director of You Are My Home on Netflix. She also wrote the novel Son of Sherlock and is in post on the television show Potwins. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. And let's, um, so I'm going to first ask you to tell us, so we're going to talk about the Christmas movies, obviously. Christmas movies is the topic, so we'll start with that anyway. Um, so I'll ask each of you to just kind of give me the, the log line or the quick pitch on the movie and then tell me how you got involved in the project, whether it was an original idea or you were brought on. Um, and uh, let's start with Valerie for that. So Memories of Christmas, it started as a, I pitched it as Will You Marry Me? And it was designed for Hallmark to fit into their um, oeuvre, so to speak that it was about an executive woman. And Hallmark got really sensitive in the last few years about making sure that women weren't giving up their careers. And that completely jived with my sensibilities anyway. So it's about a woman whose mother has passed on, she's inherited the house, and she goes back home to shut it down and sell it and discovers that her mom had left a bequeathment for someone to continue decorating the house for Christmas every year because it meant so much to the town. And so she is against that. She's opposed to it. So wackiness ensues. And of course, she comes to embrace that, you know, not just that the house is going to be decorated, but the meaning for the whole town of what that is. And then she, of course, has wrong guy back in the big city, but there is the right guy who is the guy who was hired to decorate the house and they hit it off. And in the end, she, I, well, no spoilers, but long story short, she does not give up her career to, to be part of this. So how it came about is the very first executive who ever hired me to write a script, he, uh, Matt Bierman hired me for a Joel Schumacher project back at like the start of my career. He was producing movies for Hallmark Channel. So he called me and he said, here's what I'm doing. Do you have anything you can bring in? And so what I did is I watched every single Hallmark movie that was on that year. And I figured out what the structure was and what the messaging was and what their what they like. And I came up with eight pitches. I took those to Matt and he chose four for us to take into Randy Pope at Hallmark. We took four of them in. Three of them got put in the pitch grid at Hallmark. And that was in February of that year. It was actually on Valentine's Day. And then in July, they gave me a call and said, all right, we're going, we're moving forward with Will You Marry Me? That started the process of the writing the treatment getting approval for that. That took back and forth about two and a half months. And then they ordered me the script. I got, I got the opportunity to write the script, which is not always the case. Um, and so I wrote the script and the movie got made. Great. All right. And Amanda, so yours was a little different process. Why don't you tell us, first of all, what this movie's about and then how it came to be. Sure. Um, so You Are My Home uh, is a story about a 11-year-old 11, 11 girl who um, is separated from her mother by ICE because her mother was an illegal. 
And um, she's then put into a foster care situation with a woman who had lost her family very tragically about five years prior. And they have completely different lives and backgrounds. And it kind of becomes like a, a Kramer versus Kramer baby boom situation where the two of them are just butting heads and just trying to survive while they're waiting for find her mom and have her mom come back. But in the process of it, the two of them develop a very close friendship and, and a love for each other. And then it's, gosh, you know, this woman, this kid has now opened me up again. And what am I going to do when she leaves me? Um, and that's kind of the story. And um, how it got started was uh, the producers came to me. They needed a page one rewrite on the script. And uh, I had just directed a short film called From Emily. It was a, a thriller that was in festivals and such. And uh, based on the short, they hired me to direct the movie and do the rewrite on the script. Um, and, uh, and that's how it happened. So, and we shot it in Texas. We shot it in McAllen and Harlingen, Texas, right along the border. So, cause we wanted to, we had actually shot a whole scene with the Rio Grande that ended up not making in the final cut of the film. But um, it was very important to us to, to show the, the plight of, of immigrants and immigration right now, but still keeping it, it wrapped in a family, you know, holiday message. And not really kind of taking aside one way or the other, but just kind of showing what one family struggle has been and just as, as fact. Good. Um, yeah, so, and th that, that kind of leads me to my first question about Christmas movies, um, which is that there are a lot of them. Um, as, uh, as Valerie alluded to, we know that Hallmark is practically a factory of Christmas movies. Um, so how do you find a way to come up with a new angle on Christmas, given that there's all those? So maybe, Amanda, you want to answer that, and then we'll go to Valerie uh, for the Hallmark answer. Um, well, for me, it was interesting because we did shoot it in Texas, and so also because I was dealing with a, uh, you know, trying to um, authentically replicate the Mexican culture and how they kind of celebrate and some differences in that. So, you know, we did a lot of research, and obviously I spoke to a lot of local people, like, well, you know, what's your, your Christmas like? It's a mixture of, like, you know, Tex-Mex, as they kind of call it. Um, so that I found really, really interesting in terms of like the decorating and different traditions and certain songs and, you know, like Donde Esta Santa Claus is a song that we use. It's very, very big and, you know, you see here on the radio, but it's also very big in Mexican culture and Mexican children, you know, are very familiar with that song, even more so than, you know, like Silent Night or Silver Bells or what have you. Cool. And then, so Valerie, you're working, you were working in, you know, Hallmark has um, sort of a, a not just a, a year, it's Christmas. You don't want to say formula. I get it. Nobody wants to say formula. <laughs> but not just, like they also have like there's some boundaries, right? Of like things they'll do and things they won't do. Like every like every network. So I imagine it gets even harder in that scenario, especially when they're making so many movies. It's it's a very very narrow target with Hallmark. I will say that there's. It's so funny. I I can't tell you how many people I meet you know, around the world, and when I say I write Hallmark movies, like oh, the, first off they're excited, which is great. I love that. But then they also say, I could write one of those. And I, I, Doug, you know this, and I'm sure Amanda, you know this, how many screenwriters are, are like, yeah, well, I, I, you know, in my spare time, I could write a Hallmark movie. I could toss off a Hallmark movie. I'm gonna share with you, uh, I've been working screenwriters for a long time now. This is the hardest writing project I ever had because they're, they know their audience. Mm -hmm. They know what their audience wants and they don't want it to be the exact same as everything they've ever shown, but they definitely, you have to put more Christmas in there than you ever imagined. Every, every scene has to, like, could, can you put more Christmas in, put more Christmas in? Um, and that's a really good thing, like, uh, to, to know, you just have to make sure you're, the, the core is, it starts with story, and story is conflict. 
I mean, that's what good writers know. So what you have to do is you have to look at, well, where, what can a story about Christmas be that has enough conflict to make it interesting and different, but that also is uplifting, heartwarming, doesn't have, like, there's no bad guys in Christmas movies. I was actually shocked that, uh, uh, you know, they bring later writers on, they have their closing writers. They brought a closing writer on. I, the the guy who's the wrong guy in mine, I mean, I was very careful to make sure that he wasn't right for Noel, our main character's name, Noel. He wasn't right for Noel, but he wasn't a bad guy. And they kind of went more bad guy with him than I would have even preferred. But the, the thing you have to do is make sure that there's something that's at the core of it, human, that it's just, that this is, people want love, people want connection, people want family, people want history, people are attracted to nostalgia, um, and that then there's conflict that makes sense and that's real. It's interesting. That was one of the discussions we actually had on Sweet Home Alabama a lot was about, like, neither guy is the bad guy. But, you know, like we didn't want to do that movie, which is a, you know, that's a viable model as well. But, you know, it was like about who the character is and who's right for the character. So, um, did you find any other particular challenges, uh, you know, for either of you in writing a Christmas movie? Is there anything that uh, someone who's saying, I'm going to write a Christmas movie should be aware of? Hmm. I'm going to say this one thing. Christmas is happy. And... I like, I love hearing the story of Amanda's movie, um, and which I have not seen yet. I can't, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm gonna watch that because it sounds beautiful and wonderful, but she managed to tell a really important story, it sounds like, but in a way that is still inspiring and uplifting. Um, like I am never gonna write the Christmas horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are I, of those, but yeah. <laughs> there are, there are plenty of those, but um yeah, I, I like I like everybody getting together in the end. And there's a, oh, I can't remember what executive, there's an executive whose father was also an executive and he used to say, um, at the end of the movie, the two highest paychecks have to kiss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and, uh, and you know, you mentioned that with, I think Amanda, that was a, that's a great way into the Christmas movie, of course, is it was yours as timely in a way um, and it's kind of dealing with a different issue where Christmas is not irrelevant but it's like it, it sort of like just happens to be at Christmas which provide context for the issue with family and everything so so that's kind of really good too that you have, a, have another angle or another theme going on there. Yeah uh, Christmas is really kind of more the the backdrop to the, the the story and the bigger issue it's right around Christmas time is you know when she loses her mom and ends up with this other woman and so, you know, we were very, you know, careful of decorating things and making sure it had the Christmassy feel, but it's also Southern Texas. So we can't have snow. You know, there was at one point, it's like, well, we could put snow in a little bit. It's like, yeah, no, that's not real. Harlingen. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of interesting too, that it doesn't. Years ago, I'm like, no, I'm not putting it in. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's kind of different too, because we, you know, we're used to that kind of uh, New England Christmas is kind of the American ideal of Christmas, but it's cool yeah. to see different, different environments. And by the way, for anyone who's thinking about Hallmark, one of the things my executive told me at the very beginning, she said, writers come in here all the time, like, well, let me tell you how to fix this. Like, and she's like, we're not interested in that. So if you think for a second that you want to write a Hallmark movie, you better be writing a Hallmark movie. They know what they're doing. And one of the absolute uh, is Christmas means snow. <laughs> So I, I actually 
pitched a movie to them. I shouldn't give away the title. I should write this so that I have control of this title. It was I'll Be Home for Christmas, but it was spelled I-S-L-E. Uh. And it's about a girl who's, who's stuck on an island and she's not having the big snowy Christmas she wanted to. And, and as soon as, I, I don't think I got the first sentence out. They're like, nope, <laughs> we're not doing Christmas on a tropical island. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's funny because you say that and, and we, you know, we always hear that from the TV show writers, TV series writers of like, if you're trying to get staffed on a show, don't go in and tell them that their show is broken and you can fix it, right? Like, it's their show. They, right. And in a way, like, I guess the Hallmark Christmas movie thing is, is almost like a TV show, right? Like, they do, like, a new movie, is it a new movie a day for 20 they days? Do. The year mine was up, they had 37 premieres. I think they're up to 42, I think. If you're doing 42 Christmas movies a year, you better be able to write one that not only meets their requirements, but isn't exactly 100% like, like I had, a, we had a sort of complex business deal in mind and people really responded to that a lot. So, Yeah. Um, the other thing that's, the, I, it, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe I'm, I'm right, that this is the first time either of you have had a produced narrative feature. So I know you've done like shorts and documentaries and maybe written stuff, but this is the first time, right? So the Christmas movies, I mean, were the first of those. So, you know, I'm curious about that and like maybe what you learn from the experiences. And let's ask Valerie first, because Amanda, you directed yours, so you might have a little more to say, but ask Valerie, did you, did you learn anything from seeing your work produced? Oh, I, I did. I, the biggest one, and this is really important, is no, what the notes mean like it's i had a little i had a consigliere on all of this because i have a very good friends with karen berger who has written uh, 30 hallmark christmas movies and so she every time something came up i could call her and say what does this mean and i, I will share one little story i hope this doesn't blow back but I kept getting the same note. We need Noel to understand that the decoration, that Christmas isn't about the decorations or the presents, it's about the people. So I kept writing scene after scene after scene where that was really clear that like she is getting it. This is not about the decorations, it's about the people. And then uh, again, they brought their closer in who, who wrote it after me and I'm watching my final movie and there's a moment where Noel walks onto a stage and picks up a microphone and says, and that's when I realized Christmas isn't about the decorations, it's about the people. And I was like, oh, that's how you respond to that note. <laughs> you, you literally have it be spoken out loud by a character and that way the executive knows that you got the note. And by the way, that's not gonna be true for everyone. That's not every producer, not every executive wants that as an outcome. But I have now learned that's what they want as the outcome. And so that's, it, it's really important when, look, the person who writes the check, the, they're counting on you to have artistic integrity and to interpret what they're asking for in a way that makes the project better. But at the end of the day, they get their way. And that's something that I didn't fully appreciate as a writer until I got in, until, until the project got past just the sale. And I, I've gotten as far as like sale and casting and pre-production, but no, once something goes to have, you know, names on a screen, you have to respond a different way. Yeah, and because it is a thing where they can bring in a writer to, to do what they want if you won't 
do it. That's right. By the way, it's not that I wouldn't do it. I just, mm -hmm. I thought I was doing it. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be, you know, there's also that challenge is the notes have to communicate well. And so sometimes you just aren't getting it. Um, right. Yeah. Um, okay. So then, and Amanda, so you directed your, so you may have home lessons from that as well, but any kind of like, you know, this is, this is sort of a, a podcast on writing. So uh, maybe come at it from that point. Mm -hmm. um, well, there's one thing that I always heard that Jerry Lewis had always said, and it was like, well, first there's the writer, you know, and then the poor writer has to deal with this, this, this pain in the butt who is the director who comes in and takes their work and changes it and messes it around. And then this other dude comes in who messes it around even more. He's the producer. So it's like, the, you have to get, you know, he's like, but I'm all three. So it's like, I have to, you know, I'm a pr executive producer. I'm the writer and a director. So I'd have to, I wrote the script. And then of course, once it's cast, you go through it with the cast. I'm like, eh, you know, I wouldn't really quite say that. I don't think that character, I think they'd be more, you know, or oh, what did happen to that person's cousin or whatever? It's like, oh, that's a good idea. We should, yeah. It's like, well, I mean, I know in, in my head what it is, but th they were asking questions like, no, no, I, I want to see that. I want to see that on screen. I want to be able to share that with everybody else. I was like, oh, or, or instances where, you know, like you're on set, and I wrote this, you know, scene I thought was great. And then I'm there with Alyssa Milano and she's thinking, she's like, you know, this beat feels a little similar to, to kind of what we did before. But I was like, hmm, she's like, well, you're the writer, rewrite it. And I thought, oh, geez. So I pitched her three different ideas and she's like, no, no, I thought, yes, write that one. Go write it, I'll memorize it in five minutes, we'll shoot it. I'm like, great, oh my goodness. So I'm sitting here rewriting a scene. I have like, you know, 15 minutes and just like have my headphones on, I'm just writing the scene. I'll be there in one minute. And then I turned the page in, she memorized it in five minutes and it was great. But you know, it was seeing it in that moment with the actors and having already shot a couple other things, you're realizing like, you know, in your head it feels different, but it was similar enough, you know, in tone that it needed to be something different. Um, so those were some really cool things that I learned on set working with, you know, professional actors that really want to make the best story possible. So I was very blessed for that. Yeah, and I suppose that's an extra challenge to directing too, when you have to be like, oh wait, I have to stop directing and go write something, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> without you on the set, it's what happens. <laughs> I, I actually, I want to echo that because I, um, I so love feedback from the actors and I know a lot of um, a lot of people are resistant to it and a lot of writers are resistant to it um, and I one of the best moments ever I was doing a staged reading of a script it, this script has been set up so many places in so many ways you all know this this story and I was doing a stage reading of it with the actors who were cast in that iteration and there was a moment where I was directing the stage reading the lead actor just could not do this scene and he was really just kept being super flat and he's like this is weird and then finally he looks at me he says and he was the bad guy um he said what's going on in this scene and i said oh well he got caught he's resigning and he goes this guy never resigned <laughs> and as soon as he said it it was like you are a, and it got rewritten because he could see something in the character that i couldn't see because he had to embody that person. And that the, the fact that people would be resistant to any, the, the, one of the shorts I made, the best joke in the whole thing came from the costume designer. Okay. And boy, every film is a collaborative process and anyone who's resistant to that is, or anyone who, um, oh, I won't say it's because I actually don't know. Uh, Amanda, did you, did you, you have the, uh, did you take the A film by credit? Um, no, I was not given that. Okay. Good, then I can say this. Anyone who would take the A film by credit, that's so ridiculous. The film's not by a person, that's not possible. 
it's it's a lie. That's all. Like it's a lie. <laughs> so I agree. I agree. I, I actually, it's, it's a really, really big vanity thing when someone says a so-and-so film. I mean, even unless you're like Jerry Bruckheimer or, um, I don't know, maybe Spielberg possibly, but a picture of that caliber, really? <laughs> I, I would be fine if you said um, an Amanda Raymond film. An Amanda Raymond film is true. That's true. It is an Amanda Raymond, but it's not a film by Valerie Alexander. It's not a film by Dougie. This is that's a tiny pet peeve for me. It's I have that pet peeve too. I really I really don't like that credit. And yeah. I don't think I will ever take it. I don't know. At some point, maybe someone will convince me. But <laughs> look, Woody Allen won't take it. So. Yeah. Really, I did have it on my shorts poster because I, the poster is not created by me. And here I did such a great job with it. I was like, I'll just leave it. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. it's fine. I kind of feel like it's it's a weird thing. Like I feel like the director is so celebrated in film, and then they always want some additional credits, right? They always want the film by. They want you know they want to get. It's like the director credit is the you've got it. You've got the thing, right? <laughs> like where you want. Well, the, the original from is the the French auteur theory for directors, but it was a film du, and du could mean of or by in translation, and I truly believe from understanding French cinema that they meant of, like it is a film of Francois Truffaut, which is completely true. It's only the Americans that turn it into I, as if there's sole authorship. <laughs> and also kind of like turned it into a, um, a, negotiated, a negotiated thing, right? So like you negotiate for this credit and you know, or I think the auteur theory was coming at it from more of a critical standpoint of, you know, like, oh, there are directors that we can see in a body of work, a voice, and so like, was this really like, yeah. Which directors are auteur directors, and now it's like, well, I've I've made so much money, so therefore I deserve the auteur credit. It's like that's not really what it's about. So, um, but not to di digress on that. But I'm with you on the uh, I don't like the film by credit. Um, so let's talk about um, writing in general and uh, your writing process. Like, do you outline? How do you approach structure? Um, uh, yeah, Valerie, do you want to start with that one? I 100% outline. And I, I actually am an absolute slave to structure um, because that just makes it easier. It makes the writing much, much easier. And I will say, I will start with this, the story. And I really, I just want to make sure everyone understands. I do start with story. What is, and Pixar gets this better than anyone else. But I look at every single, before I start writing, I look at every single character and ask, what do they want and why can't they get it? Every character, everyone with a name in that movie, I can answer the question, what do they want and why can't they get it? Then I will literally write out at page 25, main character makes this decision at, you know, I, I, it's, it's based on a hundred page script at page 25, at page 50, this happens at page 67, this happens at page 75, this happens. And I will write towards that. Um, which I, I know a lot of people think that that would be ridiculous, but it just makes it so much easier. It's so much easier to write when you're giving yourself that kind of structure. Um, and I think it's Terry Rossio has the line, if you're not outlining, you are outlining, but just really slowly. <laughs> yeah, outlining in draft form. You know. Exactly. Yeah. How, how about you, Amanda? Do you outline? Yeah, I, I definitely do. Well, especially in this scenario, because there was already a script and I knew it had to be a page one rewrite. And so we went through multiple outlines and I just said, you know, this is going to be completely different, just so you know. And they said, no, 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 we, we want it to be. Just make it your own. So I was like, oh, well, 
great. I love this. So, you know, and, and I couldn't have done it without that because I mean, there was a couple of things I wanted to keep in. And I, at first I was trying to preserve some, as much of the original writers as I could. And then they're like, no, 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 just throw it out. It's like, oh, I don't have to keep it. Originally the, the young girl was supposed to be in a, she was put into like a foster's kid home with a bunch of other kids. And then eventually she was adopted out of that. And so I just, I just didn't think it was all this necessary for her to go to two different homes and here and there. And it was just so convoluted. And I was like, I just want to take that whole thing out. Like, yeah. So it was only in seeing it in the outline explaining how I wanted to move this and move this piece that it made it that much easier to write. Because otherwise, you know, it's, it's like you move this chunk here and then you're down to page 50 and then you're, it gets way too, too confusing. Um, so, and then for most of my other scripts, yes, you know, we outline, especially if there's flashbacks backward and forward, like you have to know where those are. Um, the only thing I didn't outline was my novel of all things. Um, it started as a short story and I was just on a plane going back and forth from LA to Syracuse. And I meant to just, you know, pass the time because the TV screen on my, on my plane wasn't working. I was like, I'm gonna do it for six hours. So I wrote a short story. And then I remember at the time, my boyfriend, I was like, well, I'd like to read it. I said, well, it's kind of turning into a novel. It's like, what? Yeah, I'll let you know when it's done. And, and then that's how that one happened. But yeah, normally I, I would outline as well. Yeah, I, I feel like whenever I finish a first draft, I usually think I wish I'd outline more. I don't think I've ever thought I wish I'd outline less. Like, I don't think it's ever, ever, ever felt like I was wrong to outline. Um, I, I was at the Hallmark movie was the first time I ever had to write a full, like, scene by scene treatment, <laughs> which I'd never done before. And it was kind of, that was an arduous process. And it was a lot of back and forth for that. But then when they greenlit it to script, I think that's not the right word. When they said that, when they sent to script, it, be, it was incredibly easy. Makes it so much easier. So yeah. much was already written. <laughs> yeah. But I just kind of feel like the whole writer's block thing, maybe in a way, it's like you, if you know where you're going, then you don't get stuck, right? Like you, like you may have a hard time figuring out how the scene works, but like there's a confidence level in knowing what's going to come next. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and Amanda, you actually, so you bring up a good point about you were dealing with an existing screenplay. Um, uh, and I think rewriting is something probably when people are learning, however you want to say you learn to be a screenwriter, you know, it's always original material, but so much of the work is is rewriting. So, any any insights on rewriting or that that process? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, again, writing the outline really was helpful um, because I really just again I had to just kind of completely start over. And then it was funny, even even sir, I probably shouldn't say that because I don't I don't want to bash on the original writer. Um, but um, you know, because we're all we all are very um, precious with what we write and and proud of what we write. So um, I will just say that um, uh, the outlining was 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 the best I think um, in terms of trying to get a new story across and and tell it in a way without kind of um, maybe stepping on the original writer's toes too much. It's just starting from scratch. Okay, cool. Um, and so now speaking of learning to write, I'm curious. I. I I know both of you a little bit, but I don't really know your background. So, um, uh, Amanda, how did you how did you learn to to do this uh, trial and error? Did you go to film school? What was your what's your background there? Um, I started writing uh, poetry actually years and years ago. So I used to enter a lot of poetry contests, uh, short story contests. Um, I'd written a short story that ended up in Disney Adventures magazine years and years ago when I was a teenager, and. Um, yeah, I just, I just always enjoyed it. I actually went to school at Syracuse University for um, uh, creative writing and psychology because that's a great tool to use as an actor, as a writer, as a director to understand uh, human personalities and, and things. And um, 
yeah, I, I just got into creative writing and then I wrote my first script and it was terrible. It was absolutely awful. <laughs> I think we all it looked like I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I sent this to anybody. <laughs> and then I wrote my book and then I got into writing screenplays and I had some really, really wonderful mentors that would read everything I sent them and you know, they, they're very constructive criticism. Um, you know, and again, I, I applaud them for getting through what I sent them back in the day. <laughs> but uh, that that made a huge difference is having really, really good mentors who are willing to work with you and, and slog through the, you know, the bad violin planning, if you will. Cool. Um, and actually, I want to ask Valerie the same question, but before I do it, can, can I ask, uh, Amanda, you mentioned that they found you, the producers of this movie, or the financiers, I guess it would be, of this movie, found you via, via a short film. How exactly did that was it like at a festival or something or how did they? Uh, well, one of the producers um, was a friend of mine I had known and he was aware of my short film, uh, had actually been there as a kind of a consultant on it as well. And he saw how I was on set with my crew and then he saw the finished product and he's like, wow, you did an amazing job with this. It was actually up for Academy consideration uh, for the 2020 Oscars. Um, and now it's playing on like the shorts TV channel where they do all the Academy ones that didn't, that didn't make the short short list, but you know, at least got in for consideration. Um, and because of that short, uh, which is now actually optioned to be a feature, which oh, I'm excited about. Um, but that was what got me the job. So, and so were you doing a short film just as kind of like a, a showcase piece? Was it, I mean, is it a, was it a typical short film where you just decided to make a short film and, and kind of put your team together or how did that come about? Uh, well, it was it was always kind of meant to be a proof of concept for a feature, and it was um, it was a story that I it was very important to me, and it was kind of an amalgamation of different stories that different women had told me of their experiences uh, with the subject matter, and I really just wanted to tell it. But I also knew that when you go to a festival, and I've heard enough times that when you go there and they say, "Oh, so what's next for you?" and you're like, "I don't know," okay. you, you need to have something. So I wanted to make sure the feature script was done by the time the short was done. So while I was in post, and that I was also working on the feature script. Okay, cool. Uh, so, Valerie, um, so <laughs> my lighting went out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, how did you uh, learn screenwriting or get into the? Yeah, well, yeah. I, I I was a corporate securities lawyer in the Silicon Valley. I was taking companies public back in the early days of the internet, and um, I went that like law investment banking, venture capital as an internet executive. And then my mom got sick. So I went back to Indiana for a year and took care of her, which is great. She's still with us. Um, that was 20 years ago. Um, and so at the end of that year, in my absence, the Silicon Valley fell apart because <laughs> after I left, the whole the bubble burst and the whole thing collapsed. So I had cashed out before I left. So I was in good enough shape that I could go do what I, not whatever I wanted, but I could do something else to earn a living. So I thought, I want to go write movies. So I moved to LA. I didn't know anybody. Um, and I rented a place in West Hollywood and I started writing scripts. And Amanda, you, you stole my line. Like the, they were terrible. <laughs> and I, by the grace of God, my next door neighbor was an assistant at DreamWorks. And he took my scripts into DreamWorks and got coverage. Now, the, here's the downside of that for anybody starting out as a screenwriter, don't get coverage with your real name on it. <laughs> that stays in databases. But I, I, I got that unbelievably rare experience of getting to read actual studio coverage of my scripts. 
because then he'd get coverage and then he'd bring me the coverage. And I, I like, they made, they were so bad. They made the readers angry. <laughs> you know, like, and so after the third time, I was all, all right, you know what, maybe I need to learn how to do this. So I took introduction to screenwriting at UCLA, uh, a teacher named Ron Supa, who is sadly no longer with us, but um, it was fantastic. I took the class that met twice a week because instead of the one that, instead of once a week for 12 weeks, I took the only class that met twice a week for six weeks because I didn't have time. <laughs> I didn't have 12 weeks to wait. And then I wrote a script in the course of that class and that one wasn't terrible. And so a career came about after that. That's cool. I, you're right. I feel like there should be a way besides just having a neighbor that you can get professional coverage of your work. Because I had a friend that was temping somewhere and he's like, hey, I've seen the coverage for your scripts. Do you want me to make copies for you? Like totally like violating whatever kind of like legal thing. But I was like, yes, I want to see it. And, and it was actually pretty bad and including the script that got me my agent. So like, you know, after I had gotten the agent with it. So, um, but it was, it was educational too, right? Like you see, oh, this is all the stuff they're picking apart. I need to solve these problems, right? Because that's, you know, that's the difference between a script that gets you an agent versus a script that gets you work. And, you know, it's hard to learn that sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's great that the blacklist actually offers that. I mean, you can pay a fee to get script covers done uh, on the blacklist site, which, uh, you know, they're, they're professional and they do do a good job from what I've seen of other people. Yeah, that's good to know because I'm aware of the blacklist, but I've never seen the coverage or anything. So I wasn't really sure how it works. So, okay. So recommendation of the day. <laughs> also, the, there there are there are people there are really good trusted sort of script doctor people in town and and you can find one of them. But I will say, and I I, I imagine both of you had the same experience. My first sale was for I got hired. It wasn't a sale. I got hired to write a movie for Joel Schumacher, and it was an adaptation of a novel. And after that. I couldn't get honest feedback from my friends. Hmm. Like, I, I don't like, suddenly everybody who would have told me something was crap before I was now, you, you have to sort of, when you get start out, you have to move up in, in, in circles to people who aren't like agog that you're right, you know, you just got paid to write a script, wow. And so like, there were parts of that script that sucked and I didn't have anybody tell me that. And I really wish they had. And so that's, that's a hard thing to find when you're in that in-between stage in your starting career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I had a writer's group that grew out of my film school class. It was basically a group of us that, that stayed in town for the summer where most people went away and like six of us were staying in town. So we said, well, let's just make a writer's group and start writing. It lasted for 10 years and half the writer's group ended up being professional screenwriters, which I think is a pretty high ratio for any writer's group of film students so um so it's good but then like and then it kind of died just because they do eventually and, and it's been really hard to replicate that experience since um yeah i don't know if that's uh if that's why but um exactly but yeah yeah finding the right feedback is is tough and i do think there's something different from the kind of feedback you get from teachers and other writers versus like someone who just doesn't care about you and is like, we want to buy this script, right? This is why we don't want to buy this script. <laughs> you know? Like that's a different thing than is the character working exactly right? It's related and they'll talk about that, but um, you really get that like, no sale versus no sale. This is the, this is the dividing line. Yeah. I will say also in terms of bad scripts, mine were pretty bad too. And, and I did an internship at um, Zoetrope, Francis Ford Coppola's company. And now I just think like, I showed them one of my scripts back then. It was so bad. <laughs> like, what did I do? <laughs> How embarrassing. <laughs> um, uh, okay, uh, great. So 
why don't we just now wrap up and, and have, and I'd like to hear what each of you are working on next or what you're doing next. Um, Amanda, do you want to go first? Maybe tell us about the TV show you said you're in post on. Yeah, sure. Um, so the show that we just finished, uh, it's called The Pot Ones. Um, and we shot eight episodes during the pandemic, which was crazy. We actually shot it over the summer in Riverside, California. And uh, it's kind of like a family ties meets modern family um, show. And so it's, we have Kevin Sorbo is the dad. He's a single dad raising two kids. Um, one of the girls is kind of like a Mallory when you have a young little like, you know, Trumpian son and they're just thinking like, how is this our kid? We don't understand. And then we have Barry Botswick is playing the grandfather who kind of comes in and he's kind of like a hippy dippy dude and he's just kind of chill and cool. And they just have this really great relationship and, and dynamic um, uh, as, a, as a team and a family unit. And we have uh, a guest starring where like John Lovitz is in it, Tia Carrera is in an episode. Um, it's a, it's a cute little show. So we're in post on that right now and hoping for a second season. So. And, um, and the pandemic rules or that was that, that you said that was hard, huh? Shooting as I know it's, a, it's been a big challenge for everybody in the business. Yeah. Um, well, I was a producer on it. I, I wasn't a writer on it, but, um, and I also acted in it, but, uh, yeah, just having like the, the cost, the inflated cost for COVID for all the PPE that we had to have the, the testing three times a week for, for everybody, you know, we had the different zones and we realized very quickly into it that the zone just doesn't work. I mean, you can't have somebody going in and setting up a scene and then you're in the middle of the scene and the actors in the flag falls. And it's like, well, we can't move all the actors back over to holding and then have them come in and fix a flag. And it just, it eats up so much time of your day. Um, so we just had to make everybody, you know, uh, three times a week but uh, we got through it we got through it but it's certainly different it's it's difficult to wearing a mask all day it's just it becomes very exhausting and trying and everyone just kind of says please be patient please be positive please be kind to everybody we know this is difficult you know making a film is difficult enough or a series and it's even more so so we also had a rule no politics no religious talk on set and I think that was great. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. And so uh, yeah, good to be kind to each other is a good uh, uh, rule for this kind of thing. So yeah, great. Um, I will look for that show. Um, and then Valerie, how about you? What are you up to? So I have, uh, I have another project with the producer from my, from my Hallmark movie that um, we're in the process of trying to get, uh, we're doing a rewrite on it right now. And then I have a different Hallmark producer who came back and they were like, will you, Will you bring some more things into pitch? And I haven't, I just haven't developed those yet into pitches. Um, primarily, the world exploded in 2020 in two ways that changed my life drastically. We had a pandemic, which meant people couldn't leave. And we uh, had a giant awakening of racial inequality in this country. And I did a TED talk a couple of years ago called How to Outsmart Your Own Unconscious Bias. That then got turned into a keynote and a series of workshops. And so my year got insanely busy with speaking events. And it looks like 2021 is going to be a lot of the same. I'm still writing and I, I will still pitch a project. And if I sell something, it'll be my absolute top priority. But speaking, because I have been able to do it through Zoom in a way that's been really effective. I, I now have clients around the world, which I wasn't able to do before in one of two ways, either I didn't have the time, I couldn't, I, I had a week in November where I did seven keynotes and that would have been completely impossible if, if I had to fly to all those places. And there's clients, again, who wouldn't have been, ever been able to afford, they can afford my speaking fee, but they would have never been able to afford to fly me to where they are to speak. And so, 
I'm really loving that part of my life right now. And the fact that it's, it's also really important work. Uh, I've, I, I, I have become a known voice in equity and inclusion and it's making a difference. I moved into the Fortune 100 this year in terms of a client base. So I'm doing a lot of work for some of the biggest companies in America and trying to help them diversify their workforce. And diversity is one third of it. <laughs> that one third, you, you have to hire a diverse workforce, but equity, which means you have to make sure people have equal opportunities to advance and inclusion. People have to feel comfortable in their workplace. And that's become a real priority and I love it. Like I said, screenwriting, I adore, I love, I have projects, I want to move forward. But for right now, I sort of have a calling and I'm following that. Well, and certainly that, uh, that issue is, is big in Hollywood. And, and as, I, as I mentioned, the, the, the last Let's Schmooze we did was, um, you know, we, we talked about, um, we had, we had uh, Lisa Kors from the PGA Diversity Committee and Marilyn Thomas from the Writers Guild Native American and Indigenous Writers Committee talk about this stuff so it has a big impact and it's something everybody has to deal with so you know you're doing great work uh, for this so well thank you guys for coming on um it was great and and everybody go watch the christmas movies and feel good thank <laughs> thank you so much this was just an absolute pleasure this is a wonderful time lovely to meet you too valerie yes and i can't i can't wait to watch your movie i'm very excited <laughs> thank you and likewise <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Let's Schmooze. If you're a fan of Sweet Home Alabama, you might like to know that we've recently released the second Felony Melanie prequel novel, Felony Melanie and the Big Smash-Up, which tells the story of the time a teenage Melanie entered the town demolition derby. See you next month with more schmoozing about writing.